0: Today on the Zabecast, author and bourbon expert Fred Minnick will get Bourbon 101 today myths and misconceptions, snobs and douchebags, and how Japan saved the American bourbon industry. And we'll cut that bourbon with a splash of sports, the lollygagging gnats, quarterback tears of a clown, and more. If you've got 45 minutes to kill, then buckle up and let's go. <laughs> Here we go. Wednesday, July 25th, 2018. Thank you so much for the download. Looking forward to today's Zabecast. Today's Zabecast will be the last of the week. Just a warning, I know. Another three-day week. Yes, another three-day week. Yeah, you know, i got to get my, my me time here. I will be actually in Wisconsin for the Bob and Brian Charity Golf Outing. Annually the largest single-day outing in the state of Wisconsin. All benefits, the MAC Fund, the... Midwest Athletes Against Childhood Cancer Fund. It's a great cause and it's a great event and it's good to see my boys up there for whom you may already know me from them. In fact, many of you only know me from Bob and Brian. Others know me from D.C. Others know me from having national shows. Some of you are just knowing me from being uh, subscribers to the ZabeCast. Who knows? But yes, I've been going up there uh, for almost 22 years plus. I mean, I used to live You know, many years ago, before I moved back here to D.C. by way of Charlotte, I lived in uh, Northbrook, Illinois. And that was when I was working for the then one-on-one sports radio network, circa 1994. And I got hooked up with these guys up there, these FM shock jocks, even though they're not shock jocks. They don't do bits either. But they are the dominant morning show in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And they started a golf tournament uh, 28 years ago, I want to say. Uh, maybe more, uh, in which they said they wanted a day off. They're like, well, we should do a golf tournament. And their program director at the time said, our listeners don't golf. They go to rock shows, they go to concerts, they buy T-shirts, and that's it. Well, he was kind of right in that uh, most of their listeners golf badly. But they do love this out. They love to go play golf once a year. And they get all their cargo shorts And they get sunburned as hell and drunk as hell. And it's just just a great fun event. I do not get sick of it. And, of course, I then get to work in some other great rounds at great golf courses. Very lucky to uh, be playing Aaron Hills again this year. Uh, Jim Lombardo, thank you for hosting us, uh, getting us out there. Hopefully my knock on wood flight does not get delayed. That will be on Thursday. And then on Saturday, so then Friday is the tournament. Saturday, I host my Bloody Horns at the Bull. Thank you, Dave Bachman, owner and operator of the Bull. Fine course, incredible course. Jack Nicholas Design, rock and roll, hard as Chinese trigonometry. Um, That's on Saturday. And then on Sunday, uh, I'm going to be playing the incredible, incomparable uh, Black Wolf Run River course, which is part of the Kohler Complex of courses. They've got Black Wolf Run River and Meadows Valley, those were there first. That's at the American Club in Kohler, Wisconsin. And then you've got Whistling Straits and the Irish course, uh, which is on the coast there. And uh, it's an incredible four golf courses right there in, of all places, Kohler, Wisconsin. You really can go play. You can fashion an incredible golf trip in Wisconsin now. Uh, and they've got a new place further up north, north called Sand Valley, which is aiming to be like the abandoned dunes of the Midwest because it's a Crenshaw core design and it's very minimalist and it's based on these incredible sand dunes that exist in the middle of the state of Wisconsin. But it's up there. I mean, it's several more hours north, and I just haven't had a chance to go up there. So there's my golf plans for the weekend. And then uh, we'll be back next week. Oh, wait a minute. I'm not coming back till Monday. So I'm not sure how I'm going to get the Monday Zabe cast out. So this week, three shows. Next week, four shows. (laughs) Boo! (laughs) All right. Uh, Maybe I'll get one done somehow on the road and post it somehow for Monday. Not sure how I'm going to do that. Don't you want quality? Don't you need the quality of me here with my sound effects and everything that you've come to know and love? Or do you just want me talking into a microphone? You know, I've got standards. Standards. All right, let's, uh, let's do some sports real quick, and then we'll get to our friend Fred Minnick, who has written several books on bourbon. I've been uh, waiting to get him on for some time now. I figured dead of summer, just before football starts, perfect time. Whether you like bourbon or not, I think you're going to learn something today if you keep your mind open on this. The uh, Nationals continued to struggle, and that's a gentle word for suck they're now two games under 500 after losing uh in 10 innings last night on a bases loaded sacrifice fly Bryce Harper did not play he had a tummy ache I'm sorry a stomach virus and you had benched uh the the Nats benched Trey Turner for not running out a bunt that ended up going fair and he thought was going to be foul he just quit on the play can't do it you can't do it not when you are supposedly struggling to save your season there is some chance that the Nats could make a rally and, and win the division, but the odds are getting longer and longer all the time. In fact, if I can look up their POF number, POF MLB, I think this is on Fan Graphs. Here we go. Playoff Odds, Fan Graphs Baseball. Let's just see, because about a two weeks, two and a half, three weeks ago, when the Nats were still about six games back. I kept checking their playoff chances, and it kept showing an amazing 56% chance to make the playoffs somehow. And I just didn't understand it, even though the the standings are updated every day and supposedly the calculation is updated every single day. I think a lot of it is just based on, well, they're still a good team. They still have good players. And once they get certain guys back from the DL, they're going to be good. They still have a good chance. Well, let's see here. Oh, the Nats, uh, they're down to 45% on the POF, and they're now no longer favored to win the division. They are 33.6% to win the division, which is amazing because they're seven games back uh, of the Nationals. Or excuse me, seven games back of the Phillies. They're seven games back of the Phillies, and they're six games back of the Braves. Seven and six. I mean, seriously, they're going to overcome twin seven and six deficits? I don't see it. So now it comes down to the question of should they trade Bryce Harper because the trade deadline's coming. I think it's pretty certain that he is not going to re-sign with the Nats. I think there's a strong argument that whatever he and Boris wants is way too much fucking money. So sorry, but no, we're not going to pay him three, four 400000000 million. So let's move on. So if really the Bryce Harper era is about to sunset, let's get something in return. Now it'll it'll seem like a surrender flag. It'll seem like, well that's it, we're done, we're out. We're not we, we we're not going to, you know, we have no chance of making up the 6 and 7 game deficits, but that's not necessarily the case. Because if you get an extra arm or a reliever in this Bryce Harper deal and if you get one of the youngsters like Soto or Robles to step up or Michael A Taylor to give you 80% of whatever Harper's production has been and it's mostly been home runs and power not average then you're not necessarily any worse off this year than you were when Bryce Harper was on the team especially if you get an arm back that can you know contribute right now but then you got to spin it as Hey, this was tough and we love Bryce and he was the face of the team. But you know what? We didn't think he was going to resign, and we still want to make a push for the playoffs, and this gives us an extra arm or an extra this to do so. And we're gonna we're gonna make up from for Bryce Harper's production somewhere else. That's a tricky sell. That's a tough one. You gotta if you're Mike Rizzo, who I don't think has it in him, and if you're the learners who I don't think want to do this, then you gotta, you gotta spin it. You gotta really sell it in a way that's believable. It's not totally easy, but this season's over. I mean, come on, over, 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 over. Got some emails here. Thank you for your feedback all the time. Uh, this uh, email comes from Kevin Bralenthin. Zabe, if I could nominate somebody for FTG. It's the person who gathers at the gate, at the airport, right in line, before your group is called. You're standing five feet from the gate. You don't, you will not fucking miss the plane. Fuck that guy, get out of my way. P.S., thank you, Zabe, for doing your podcast and being my daily dose of therapy. Well, you're welcome on that, I appreciate it. Uh, Gargantu gargantu Bracket Brad, Brad Turner, emailed me to say, Zabe, I finally determined what your podcast is. It's an adult sports-oriented version of Mr. Rogers. You highlight the general sports happenings, and then you open the door, kick off your shoes, and discuss it with whatever neighbor stops by. Oh, it's Mr. McFeely. Come on in. It's fucking awesome, says Brad. Awesome! <laughs> Monday show is literally the exact same conversation my buddy and I had at lunch over a few beers. Now look, just monetize this sucker. I would easily pay Netflix money for this content. Sincerely, Brad. I uh, would. We're, uh, we're working on it. We're working on it. We got we got some ideas in the hopper. But yeah, gotta keep keep doing it. Uh, Matt Moeller emails me to say thank you for that. Brother, should I do the show with a red sweater like Mister Rogers? I know this, Mr. Rogers didn't feel the need to say the F word all the time. Potty mouth this, I'm trying to listen to this podcast with my kids in the car. Ah, a big mistake. You can't. And the reason that I do sprinkle in hopefully judicious amounts of F-bombs and whatever is to differentiate the product, first and foremost, from my over-the-air show. And secondly, because this is how I talk. This is how a lot of people talk. Not everybody. But a lot of people. Now, some guys like our friend, uh, the big ginger, Mr. Murray, I think goes out of his way to drop F-bombs and that's okay. He's an angry young man, but uh, but I love him anyway. We're going to dial that back. And if I'm getting too much with the random F-bombs, then let me know. I will print up coupon books if needed that say, okay, here's, here's a coupon, like I do with Murray. Like, okay, I used one there. Let me go ahead and uh, save this last one for something good. Matt Moeller emails me to say, subject... Meow. Save. Does this seem about right? All the tiger slurpage during the broadcast on Sunday was ridiculous, by the way. Oh, speaking of that, the uh, British Open numbers are in, and they were fantastic. As a matter of fact, the British Open got the highest rating it's had in like 18 years. Darren Ravel. here we go. Final round of the Open, 6.48 million viewers. Uh, That is the most in 18 years. Tigers win at St. Andrews 18 years ago. In 2000, had 8.56 million viewers. Now you could say, ooh, golf has lost 2 million viewers in that time. Okay. But remember, 2000, peak of Tiger mania. Tiger was on his way to winning, or not winning, he was on his way to completing the Tiger Slam. Uh, That would be... Uh, this was the second leg of the Tiger Slam because, let's see, he won the 2000 U.S. Open at Pebble, 2000 British at St. Andrews, 2000 PGA Championship at Valhalla in extra holes against Bob May, and then the next year won the Masters, 2001, in that thrilling duel uh, in extra holes yet again with Chris DiMarco, I think. I'm pretty sure, don't quote me on that. I mean, that that's peak Tiger right there. That He's bringing eyeballs to the set that had never watched golf before so it's unrealistic to think that you'd get the same number in total viewers but still best number in 18 years anyway back to the email here from matt moeller he says the tiger slippage during the broadcast was just ridiculous on sunday for example he had a bad shot that luckily didn't fall in a bunker and the best that david faraday could muster was oh that was so close to being perfect thankfully johnny miller stepped in and said well i don't know about that while Molinari hit two of the best shots I've ever seen to on un- two untouchable pins, which were probably the best two shots of the tournament, and all any of the announcers could muster was crickets. Tigers' average to below average shots were deemed brilliant, while his truly brilliant shots by others or, t- or while truly brilliant shots by others were deemed eh, good or barely commented on with things like well, he needed a bounce. Of course, dude played that bounce perfectly with the perfect execution, but they made it seem like pure luck when it wasn't being done by Tiger. Meow, sign Matt Moeller. All right, there is some of that going on. There's no question. There is no question there is some Tiger slurpage, and there is no question that, that the announcers get sucked into things. The one example that kind of drove me a bit batty was Saturday. Tiger steps up on number nine and pulls out driver. And this is, you know, a rare occasion. He's only hitting like four or five drivers around when he could be hitting upwards of fourteen. And so he hits, he pulls out driver, and already the announcers like, "Oh, he's going to hit driver." They're all excited. He takes a mighty lash at the driver. It makes the sound that tour players drivers make, which is a whoosh and a splat and a schlink. That is a medley of sounds that you and I can't make those sounds with our drivers. Oh no. We don't have the club head speed. We don't have the integrity of strike to do that. But they do. Literally, as the ball is in the air, the announcers are gushing. Oh, wow. He really, what a great shot that was. And you're like watching going, okay, where's it going? Uh, Left rough. It didn't matter. He put it in the left rough. It was just, oh, my God, Tiger hit a driver. Wow. So literally then, within two minutes of that swing and that reaction for the announcers, Jordan Spieth. Who's, you know, a pretty big star in the game nowadays, not as big as Tiger, tees off on number one. And he hits a missile. You know, Tiger, I mean, Jordan Spieth is not particularly long, but he's not short either. For just an average sized, skinny, you know, kid, suburban kid, he can hit it. He can hit it. He hits a missile on one that threads this narrow chute between a pot bunker and and a ridge, and then it funnels down to the green. This thing, boing, 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 zzzz. And it goes all the way, drives the green 380 yards, and he's got 10 feet now uphill for eagle on number one. And the reaction from the broadcast was like, oh, wow, that, that, that ran out a long way. Oh, boy. Boy, Jordan Spieth there, what well, a drive there. That was the general tone of the reaction. And I thought to myself, my God, you know... You know what the announcers would have done had Tiger Woods, a number one, driven a 380-yard hole. They might have showed Spieth's drive a second time. Might have. Don't quote me on it. You know if Tiger had done that, they would have shown the drive four or five times. And they would have gone back to it later in the broadcast. So yes, there is Tiger bias in that regard. And there's Tiger slurpage. And it's probably just not ever going to be totally corrected for. Couple more emails, then we'll get to our friend Freddie Minnick. Eric Linder writes to say, Zabe, I've been listening to you for a decade from Pennsylvania on various AM slash satellite slash podcast mediums. Thank you very much for all that. I was listening to you the other day talk about the Arena League team, that'd be the Washington Valor, who has made the Super Bowl of their league, the Arena League, at two and ten. He inserts the oh, Arena League football sucks. How come that guy's running backwards? Hey, this is arena football. Didn't you ever hear of a four-point conversion? (laughs) Oh, arena football sucks. (laughs) He says, I was the coach of my 10-year-old Little League team this year, and we went through the entire season without a single win. But given the entire league makes the playoffs, long story short, yada, 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 we made an improbable run through the quarterfinal, the semifinal, and the league championship game with a stellar regular season record of 0-14. That's how it happens. Even losers can sometimes become champions. This will make the millennial generation feel even more entitled to deserve success despite constant failure. Hashtag champions, I guess? Yeah, I think more and more youth leagues are going to everybody makes the playoffs. In fact, I believe my daughter's high school field hockey playoffs, everybody makes the playoffs because they want a full field. And in general, I'm not theoretically against that, but how do you... You can't justify putting a winless team in the playoffs. There, there ought to be some cutoff. There ought to be something like, because when you make the playoffs, it's a little accomplishment. You get excited for it. You're like, yay, we made the playoffs. I don't know if these leagues are doing it out of sense of fairness. Like, well, they, it'd be mean to not invite them to the playoffs. Like, it's rude. It's a party. we got to invite them. Or if they're doing it because they want more robust playoff fields. And in baseball, you ought to – I mean, look, any sport, you ought to be able to be the team that's 0 and 14. But being baseball, kids, 10-year-olds, <laughs> you never know. You never know. And then finally, this one from Rob. He says, Zabe, I just had to show you this article uh, from wyomingdaily.com. You think you know you're merging correctly, but you're probably doing it wrong. It's another article explaining the zipper merge. For those that don't know, Google it. It's basically this. When a lane is closed on a highway, not only are you entitled to every inch of that soon-to-be-closed lane, but in fact, you are supposed to use every inch of that soon-to-be-closed lane until the moment you can no longer use that lane. The pre-merging of people who see that a mile ahead or a half a mile ahead that the lane ends, it's the pre merging that causes an even greater backup. So when a guy is saying, okay, pre mergers, I'm going to keep using this lane here, da, da 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 and then some asshole pulls out suddenly to kind of like, yeah, you know, or, or a truck will pull out and block you from scooching ahead, they're the assholes. They're doing it wrong because bottom line is that's incorrect. You got to. You got to understand the dynamics of traffic, and you got to understand the concept of a zipper merge. And I don't have the resources here to fully explain it. I mean, I could, but who cares? I've already spent too much time on my golf plans and on baseball and on emails. So look it up yourself, zipper merge, and then you will uh, then you will know more. All right, our next guest today—a uh, little bit of an offbeat guest. Uh, his name is Fred Mittick. He is a, a former. Uh, Army reservist who spent nine years in Iraq as a staff photographer. Served our country uh, beautifully in doing so. And he is now one of the foremost experts on bourbon in America. Wall Street Journal best-selling author. He has written several books, including the one I'm going to quote to you right now. It's called Bourbon Curious, a simple tasting guide for the savvy drinker. He's also written other books, such as uh, The Untold Story of How Women Save Bourbon, Scotch, and Irish Whiskey and many, many more. He has written for Scientific American, Whiskey Advocate, and Whiskey Magazine. He is the bourbon authority for the Kentucky Derby Museum and has appeared on CBS This Morning, Esquire, Forbes, NPR, and many other media outlets. He is Fred Minnick. So how did we get tangled up, Fred? Because we've been doing this dance of, you know, we should have you on to talk bourbon at some point, and it just never <laughs> happened. Where,
1: where did we cross paths? I don't remember it must be all the bourbon we drink. Yeah, I wish. <laughs> so I I was on I I was a i was a guest on your show when you were on vacation. Right. Scott uh, got you. Time.
0: Scott got you yeah. on, but but you had already reached out to me prior to yep. Scott getting you on. So you yeah. were a, you were a listener. First of all, Fred, you are in Kentucky. In, That's in right. God's country in the cradle mm-hmm. Of the beautiful brown liquor that is bourbon.
1: It is everywhere you turn. There's there's a <laughs> bourbon advertisement or there's a bourbon something. Right, I mean, right. it, is, it so, is where it was born. It's where everything happens.
0: So you used to listen to me on uh, Sporting News Radio, which became Yahoo Sports Radio, which became SB Nation Radio, and then yeah. I was gone, and then the boys were back, and then the boys were gone, and then, you know, it all went to pieces, but... Uh we'll we're working on our great big comeback, but that's how you started to listen to me. Now, what was it that made you reach out to me regarding your passion and what you do, which is as a bourbon expert? Was I was I talking about bourbon one day and was I horribly misinformed? Because right. I'm guessing I was.
1: Yeah, you you were misinformed uh about what bourbon was, but you'd always talked about wanting a bourbon barrel. That's and I was right. gonna try and and I was gonna try and help you get a a bourbon barrel because I have some really good friends in DC who own distilleries there and have a lot of additional bourbon barrels. Well, you'll be glad to
0: know that I had a distributor step up and gift me. I mean, gift me a beautiful (laughs) specimen of a Buffalo trace bourbon barrel that proudly sits downstairs in my bar and it looks absolutely fantastic. So uh, thank you, And for that's that. a good
1: barrel to have,
0: oh, that's yeah, that's a good barrel to have no, it's a i yeah. I love the logo and i and I do like the bourbon, but anyway, so at least I hope I was gently and lightly misinformed about bourbon and not righteously so because I read in the forward to your book, Bourbon Curious, about how you often have encounters with people at parties who sometimes just are like, "Nope, nope bourbon is this. it's gotta be two years old and that and they are. Horribly misinformed, but God help them—they are not going to back down from their stance, right?
1: I, lo- I, 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 you broke up a little bit on me there, but if, if you're yeah. if you're referring to the people who just randomly come up to you and then start to tell you like what bourbon is supposed to be, probably the, the greatest story that I could ever give out of this is that in, in one of the classes I was giving one time, this old lady comes up to me, she's walking toward me, her got her arthritic hips and she has this cane. I'm thinking she's gonna compliment my ascot or you know, (laughs) ask me where the bathroom is. And she puts her finger in my chest and she says, Bourbon has to be made in Kentucky, boy. And I was like, I was like, no ma'am, that's actually not true. Bourbon can be made anywhere in the United States. And she's you need to get your facts right. And then I pulled an actual bottle that said, it was New York. It had New York bourbon on it. I was like, "See right here, you know, <laughs> this says New York bourbon." She's like, "That ain't bourbon. But it <laughs> says bourbon." You know, so she so was where, very stuck in her ways.
0: So where <laughs> does that miss? Where does that incorrect notion come from?
1: Well, there was actually a brief time in our country's history where we did consider bourbon to be very unique to Kentucky, and that would have been. In the right after after the Pure Food and Drug Act under Theodore Roosevelt in 1906 1907, um, a lot of people were making fake bourbon all over the country and then putting it on the market. And the government sued those people under the Pure Food and Drug Act for for libel, which, as you know, was basically is the written form of slander. And they were saying that in, in their arguments against these distillers who were doing that. They said bourbon had to be made in Kentucky, so that was like really the only time in our country's history where we said bourbon was unique here. Now it was born here, it became acclaimed here, but it was ne- that was the only time we ever had any kind of you know federal leaning toward it actually being made here. When, when bourbon becomes a unique product of the United States in 1964, Congress actually got together. And declared bourbon to be a unique product, so it cannot be made anywhere else in the world. It has to be made in the United States. That was that allowed the distillers in Illinois, Indiana, New York, Pennsylvania, allowed them to continue making bourbon. But what okay. it did do?
0: So yeah, so what it did do? Go ahead, and finish your thought. And it, you I was to go go. say
1: what it did do was there were also distillers in Mexico and Canada who were attempting to make bourbon. And label it as such. That basically ceased their ability to do so.
0: Okay. So the mis the the the, the misnomer keeps saying that the misconception, the misconception mm-hmm. that bourbon has to come from Kentucky, actually is born of something that was true 80, 90 years ago. Right.
1: It's that's absolutely true. Okay. Actually, probably a hundred hundred and. Ten years ago, about one hundred ten
0: years ago. Okay, fine. So that's where it comes from. But now yeah. it's just it's got to be made in the U.S. So it probably, it probably has not stopped Mexico from making what they call bourbon or whiskey. What do they call it? Since we we, we don't well, let they, them most call of those. It
1: that. Yeah, most of those distillers went out of business. Oh, okay. You starting you're starting to see a little bit of a comeback from them. But the the Kentucky distillers absolutely perpetuated this idea that bourbon had to be made in Kentucky. Of course, you know, yeah. Even even now, the Kentucky governor will say 95% of the world's bourbon comes from Kentucky and the rest of it's counterfeit. So it, it's a little fun kind of tongue-in-cheek thing that they still talk
0: about. Okay. All right, so let's get the terminology straight. Bourbon, whiskey, scotch. Yep. What's the difference between the three? All
1: right, so let's do this. Let's look at whiskey as a categorical term so in the in the world of spirits you have spirits that are made from uh fruits like grapes okay those are brandies oh yeah so those when when yeah when they're distilled
0: is wine a spirit no
1: no wine is wine is a fermented product okay so when it is when it's distilled it is called a brandy
0: uh beers are fermented fred
1: yeah, beers are just fermented.
0: So beers and, and wines and are fermented. Spirits yeah. are, uh, they, distilled.
1: They are they they are yeah, Spirits will be fermented and then they will be distilled. And when they're oh, okay. distilled, they basically they go up and proof. The yeast no longer exists, and you know that it. it that's why you have like uh, you know one, one shot of whiskey will equal a can of beer. Okay, you know,
0: so okay, so in the in the distilled realm, mm-hmm. if it's fruit, it'll be a brandy.
1: It'll be brandy, right? Uh, if it's grain, depending how it was distilled, it'll be a whiskey. You know, uh, okay. and to be to be a whiskey, and this is around the world. It's basically just distilled grain aged in wood. Now, yeah. within the whiskey category. You have subcategories. You know, scotch is a type of whiskey, and within scotch, you have single malt, you have single grain, you have blended scotch, and then you go over to the country uh, close to them in Ireland, and, you know, they have Irish whiskey, uh, pot, pure pot still whiskey, blended pot still whiskey. You know, so they have all these different categories right. in Ireland and in Scotland. We skip, we skip are...
0: we skipped an important distinction. Scotch has to come from Scotland. Period. Yes, that's there's right. There's no Kentucky Scotch... Scotch.
1: It's if it's Scotch, nope. it's from
0: Scotland. And it can be a that's bunch right. of different sub varieties. Then there's Irish whiskey and blended Irish whiskey. Irish whiskey.
1: whiskey and, and and has to be from Ireland. Okay. All right. Okay, and... so
0: there we go. So in America, what's the difference between whiskey and bourbon?
1: So bourbon is a whiskey, but it's a type of whiskey that has to be come from a fermented mash of at least 51% corn. Okay. It has to be distilled at no higher than 160 proof. And that's really important because vodka, which is odorless and tasteless and it's designed that way, is coming off the still about 190 proof. And so you have – the higher you go up in proof off the still – the more you're stripping out of it from a flavor perspective. And bourbon, they obviously have a lot of flavor, they want that flavor there, and it is, it has a regulation standard that it can't go any higher than 160 proof off the still. Now the reality is, is like people like Jim Beam, Four Roses, uh, Heaven Hill, Wild Turkey, all these guys are actually in that 130 proof point to 140 proof point coming off the still. Now that's a little bit of what usually kind of rolls down that gets me going down a geeky highway. <laughs> so I will be I'll pull back from there.
0: All right. So basically bourbon next, bourbon is fifty-one percent corn.
1: Yeah, it's always predominantly corn. So yeah. that's what that right there separates it from um the, the, the rest of the whiskeys. Like so in America, yeah. um a rye whiskey has to be fifty-one percent rye. Um it's a different standard in Canada but not to confuse you Canada has their own laws okay. but so <laughs> going back going back to bourbon after it comes off the still it then goes into a new charo container by law that's what it says in the law, new charo container but in reality it's a barrel and it cannot go in that barrel any higher than 125 proof so they will take it off the still they will add water to it and then they will put it in the barrel and as soon as it touches the barrel, it is considered bourbon. Now, the barrel is the most important aspect of bourbon, 100%. It get, gets in that barrel and it starts interacting with that wood. And every day it's in there, it's deep, you know, getting deeper in the wood, penetrating it, and it's getting all those wood sugars pulled out of it, and it's getting all of its color from the barrel. And bourbon producers cannot reuse that barrel. So what they do with them is they sell them to Scotland. They sell them to Ireland, Canada, tequila makers. Even Tabasco is aged in used bourbon barrels for okay. three years.
0: So let me stop you right there. Why can't you reuse a good bourbon barrel?
1: So this is something that was just kind of practiced, and it became regulation in the 1930s. The Cooperage industry, which that's the industry that makes the barrels. Right. They started seeing the writing on the wall. The barrels were not being used as much. You now they had forklifts. They had ice boxes, They had all these things that people were storing things in. You know, the 1700s and 1800s, the barrel was the forklift of the world. But going into, you know, the 1930s, it was near extinction.
0: Yeah.
1: And the, and the only people using it were really uh, – alcohol manufacturers Okay. and the cooperage industry saw an opportunity to tie the bourbon industry down and they ended up making it getting the bourbon industry to agree to make that a law so in like a 19- law. yeah a, a it's an law. actual law no actual why, federal regulation
0: given the billions of dollars at stake fred why on earth hasn't the bourbon industry told the cooper make the cooper industry uh hey Take a hike. We're going to reuse these things because it's going to add forty percent to our bottom line, or whatever percent it is.
1: You know, they would they would actually fight anyone to death if they wanted to change that because the barrel is what makes them so unique. They don't. That's where they get all of their. Caramel rich flavors, a lot of that vanilla, some and those coconuts, and okay, chocolates but, that you get in bottles. But other
0: countries are reusing our barrels happily now. How many times can a barrel be reused before it loses its? Well, here's its, the Oof.
1: thing: is they're they're also they're also reselling those. I mean those those barrels will those barrels will last eighty years before they end up at Lowe's, cut in half, and in some old lady's front yard. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, so you you get you get a lot of use out of them.
0: Okay, but I'm saying like. We're we're voluntarily, as a nation, tying ourselves down to one-use barrels for bourbon, not because right. of not because of anything that says this is what makes the best bourbon. We're doing it to keep the barrel makers in business.
1: Well, I think that's probably how that's how it was. Uh, that's how it started. I mean, I don't think,
0: but it still it is be, today,
1: be... right? Yeah, it, it, it is. Yeah, it still is today. Okay, and. I think when you look at changing, because the distillers have changed many laws, they're very influential.
0: I would imagine uh, not, <laughs> not as
1: influential as they used to be, but they're still influential. But if they wanted to change that, you know, they they probably could. Okay, but so, it really so anyway. It so really that does make an impact. All right.
0: So and now I understand one of the, the hot new things is to distill bourbon or to age bourbon in someone else's barrel, a wine barrel. For example, from France yeah. or some other spirit, so it gets a little cross pollination.
1: Yeah, actually, a highly controversial subject in the in the uh, in the bourbon world. You might say it's the designated hitter of, uh, of whiskey <laughs> in some ways. Yeah, uh, a lot of people are against that, you know, because right. the the law the law is very clear that it needs to be in virgin oak. But there's this ongoing debate that it is bourbon. But then they finish it in a pork barrel or a cognac right. barrel or a wine barrel. Right. And that that just gives it some additional flavor. And I personally really love those products. Like Angel Envy is a good one. Bellamid has a really nice sherry cast finish. I personally love them, but I do wish that we could clean up the labeling a little bit because it's pretty and you know, and the in the governing body that regulates alcohol labeling is uh An arm under the treasury. It's called the TTB, and they do they do a piss poor job of making sure things, you know, get properly regulated. They they they'll, I mean, if you distilled a can of shit, they would probably approve (laughs) it for vodka. So,
0: all right, let's take a quick break here. By the way, if uh, you want to know know more. Excellent book and a beautiful, beautiful printed hardcover. I'm holding it in my hands. Bourbon Curious, a simple tasting guide for the savvy drinker by Fred Minnick, who is talking to us right now. And also you have a book called uh, Bourbon, The Rise, The Fall, and Rebirth of an American Whiskey. We'll get into some of those issues in just a second. But let's throw one more wrinkle into the mix. Jim, or excuse me, Jack Daniels. Is Jack
1: Daniels a bourbon? Probably the most controversial question that we get. The and the thing is, it is absolutely bourbon,
0: but they don't call it that.
1: They call it a
0: Tennessee sipping whiskey, don't they?
1: Yeah, this all go. This all goes back to trying to have a market separation. You know, Tennessee is trying to is trying to separate itself from from Kentucky in the whiskey marketplace, and they're actually very equal in terms of of quality, like going, going into the 1930s and 1940s. Right. And they both had, they're both on that pedestal of American whiskey. And what you saw was that Tennessee was trying to separate itself based on something historical that they've used in their, in their processes called uh, the Lincoln County process. And that's where they actually filter the spirit uh, through uh, maple charcoal before it goes into the barrel, so it gets it gets a kind of a, a filtration set before it's ever put in the barrel. Now, the federal government will not grant them any kind of special designation, and so when we have free trade agreements, they will actually refer to um, Tennessee whiskey as a straight bourbon made in Tennessee. So. <laughs>
0: This is this is so comically complex. It's a straight bourbon made in Tennessee, but it's not technically that said. That said, that uh, said, Jack Daniel's is the top dog, right, in terms of volume.
1: Yeah, yeah they're the okay. number one selling whiskey in the world, even over Johnny Walker. Okay, and you know it, it's a it's an amazing distillery too. If you've never been, it's uh, okay. It's it's incredible.
0: Who's number two, three, four amongst the big boys? Just so roughly in, speaking, you don't have to give me up to date. In
1: American whiskey or all whiskeys? Uh,
0: let's go American first, then we'll go overseas.
1: Okay. So when we look at the entire American portfolio, it's Jack Daniel's, Jim Beam, Evan Williams, Maker's Mark, Wild Turkey. Okay. So those would be those would be the top five, and then kind of getting in the mix are are brands like Bullet, um, you know. Knob Creek, maybe you'd see you Woodford know, you see, Reserve. Yeah, Woodford's going to okay. be right in that mix. Um You know, it, there. It's after you get after number five. It's a, it say kind of changes all the time.
0: I bet the pie um, chart gets to be very thin little slices. But a lot of those yeah. makers are trying to go for their little niche, and I'm sure they're carving them out. Okay. Well, what's interesting. Yeah.
1: Is the the category I just in some of those I just gave you? They're some of them were owned by one company, so you have right, 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 right So right. You, you have a little bit of like uh, having two horses in the race and sure using using one to block the other. Here, here's actually <laughs> here's a funny story. The the bourbon business is all about characters and has all these people who are have been at each other's throats, friendly in a friendly manner for for generations. In the 1980s and 1990s, Maker's Mark was trying to grow, and they were taking pop shots at Jack Daniels. They actually found a guy in the South. His name was Jack Daniels, and they, and they hired him, and they put him in all these ads holding Maker's Mark, and they dressed him up just like the Jack Daniels. And they said, look, Jack Daniels loves Maker's Mark. <laughs> <laughs> and so Brown Foreman, the parent company of Jack Daniels, after all of these efforts by Maker's Mark, said, "Please, somebody get a bourbon to compete with Maker's Mark to get them off our back." And that bourbon ended up being Woodford Reserve.
0: Wow! So, and now,
1: and now it's one of the top tier um, brands. And <laughs> so, in other words, in all
0: Jack Daniel's, the big dog, said, "Okay, you want to fuck with us? Great. Watch, we're going to mm-hmm. make a bourbon that's going to start yeah. mowing your yard on the <laughs> bourbon side of things." <laughs> Because you wouldn't shut your mouth about, oh look, we got Jack Daniels and he loves this. Blah, 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 blah. All right, let's go over to seas to Scotland. What are the top scotches?
1: Uh, Scotch is uh, so Scotch is very heavily. So you have your single malt category, which that's Glenn uh, uh, Glenlivet and Glenn Glenfiddich are going to be your top two.
0: The Glens, as we call them, and is single yeah. malt the more expensive of them? Is it considered the? higher end the snobbier of these yeah spirits. it tends to be
1: i mean okay. those some of the some of the great single malts like from mcallen Yep. you know th- they can go at auction up to a million dollars i mean they Jeez. they get they spend stupid money what, on some of that stuff
0: why are some of those single malt scotches in the in the liquor store why are they so expensive <laughs> A couple hundred dollars a bottle which i would never buy because my my tastes and my passion are just not that extreme why are they so expensive does it cost more to make
1: yeah, a lot of those older Scotches have been sitting in a in a warehouse for 30, 40 years. Oh, that's
0: right. It's the amount of years they're aged. Yeah. So you're you're buying the number of years,
1: basically. See in Kentucky, in Kentucky, you really, you know, it's hot here, it's cold here, and you got the new barrels. So you don't need as much time to get to achieve a quality, you know, got product it. that you want. Whereas in Scotland, they're in used barrels, one and it's basically the same damn temperature yeah. all year round. Um and so you have you don't have as much, you know, effort pushing it in the wood. Yeah, if it. you will, from nature. All right.
0: And then the Irish At, do their own thing and they've got Jamesons and I'm sure. Yeah, that's a good... it, but
1: actually in in, in Scotland the, the two number you know, the top ones would be Shivas Regal and and Johnny Walker would be number one. Got it. So and, and okay. that's a blend. Okay. Uh, but yeah, in, in Ireland, Jameson bushmills um from a quality perspective red breast is probably the best is is probably the best whiskey you can find on a normal basis and uh, i always look for like red breast 12 year old 15 nice. year old i nice. mean there's some really beautiful
0: okay.
1: expressions from that brand
0: all right so let's bring it back to the states here one of the anecdotes you have in your book is about how when you sat down and talked to the owner of bullet rye bullet uh b u l l e i t but yeah it's bullet. Pronounced mm-hmm. bullet uh the the mm-hmm. the founder's name that you sat down with again was yeah uh, tom bullet tom bullet okay mm-hmm. he said to you he said look a lot of what goes on in this you know whiskey and bourbon game it's not what's necessarily in the glass it's yeah. what's surrounding the brand he sort of admitted to you that the marketing is carrying the day on a lot of these brands. Not that the the bourbon's not good and not that you don't have your preferences, but you got to have a bit of a story. You got to have a bit of a hook, a bit of an angle, right?
1: Yeah. And I mean, it goes all the way down to the, like who commands these companies you're looking at, like when it looks like when you're looking at the actual bottle caught, like every, when it comes down to everything, 75% Seventy-five percent of all the money spent is on is on marketing. There's also they also have like a, a, a big tax thing that they have to pay, but marketing kind of runs the runs the world right now in spirits. Yeah, yeah. and there's and it kind of, I think it really started with Grey Goose. You had um, you know Mister Frank who went down who said to somebody's like, "Get me a." get me a, a high-end vodka in France. And he put it in that fancy package and he kind of changed the game. I mean, he changed the game for, for vodka and opened the door for someone like Tito's who is actually, you know, he calls himself handcrafted and everything. But, you know, that's a matter of like, he's been acquiring distillate from other people and then redistilling it there in, in Texas. So you have... You have a lot of questionable practices in in all forms of spirits.
0: You know, I, I know that Tito's is a hot brand right now, and I'm not really into vodka, which is fine. Some people are. Whenever Good I man. hear whenever I hear whenever I hear Tito's handcrafted vodka, I just chortle thinking. What in the fuck does that mean? Handcrafted? Yeah. <laughs> Is he sitting there with a hammer pounding on a puddle of vodka to hammer it into just the right taste? Like, get out of here with that! Handcrafted? Yeah, I don't, I don't drink that machine tilled vodka. That stuff swill. I want mine handcrafted, but it's brilliant
1: marketing, right? It, it's brilliant marketing. It's also language that's very common, you know, right now. And it things like small batch, handcrafted. That just For whatever reason, people...
0: Private reserve, uh, that kind of stuff. They just
1: completely (laughs) ignore their senses and like, oh, this (laughs) must be good.
0: (laughs) exactly right. Well, look, I, I am myself, Fred, a sucker for the marketing because basically I will like pretty much any vodka or, excuse me, any bourbon, any whiskey, any scotch, whatever in the appropriate quantities. I don't necessarily have my favorites, but I like certain bottles and the way they look sitting on my bar shelf and so little things like uh what's the one with the horsey on the top Blanton's. yeah Blanton's. okay Mm -hmm. Uh, that's an expensive one i usually don't buy it my brother's bought me a couple bottles i'm like ooh, i love the little horsey on the top you know maker's mark with the with the poured on wax over the top i'm like that's kind of cool right there it's got the bottle's got to look good for me you know for me to want to put it up on the shelf
1: yeah, you know they are they are pieces of art. You know, and, and there there's a lot of effort that goes into the bottles, and there's a lot of effort that goes into the whiskey. And you have a, they sit there, and you you see that kind of like shimmering russet color or amber hues. In the, sometimes in the right light, there'd be like a hint of like red coming out of the corner with the liquid. Right. And then and then you see like the, you fill the glass, and they're and they just they really do. They feel like art unless yeah. you pick up something at the bottom shelf like old crow and then it just feels like alcoholism. But you know, you just gotta you just gotta know what to get. Yeah. All
0: right. So let's talk about when did Bourbon make a comeback of sorts? Because it seems like it wasn't a chic. It wasn't I mean you couldn't have gone to a place listen to you, are you pouring one right now? Is that what I'm hearing?
1: Yeah, yes I am actually I heard yeah.
0: the proof can you get that <laughs> Can you do that again, Fred, close to your phone? I want to hear that. Shish, Here we go.
1: Okay. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to drink a little more now. <laughs> Poor guy. Ah, yes.
0: I love Can it. That works for you? I love it. Um. So bourbon is very chic now, and there are bourbon bars that have yeah. cropped up uh, all over the place. This is only in the last 20 years, right, that this has been kind of a hot liqueur
1: yeah yeah it's it's kind of it's actually kind of sad when when you when you look back to what happened to bourbon you know i talked about 1964 that's the year that the bourbon breaks out and it's like it's the moment you know it's its own unique spirit of the united states it couldn't be a more proud moment for the category and that's when vodka starts hitting the scenes and Starts taking away market share. You know, the hippie generation stops drinking vodka and or stops drinking bourbon. And and the, the bourbon distillers really don't know how to react to that. So they start trying to compete with the vodka in their space. They're not, the distillers are not necessarily diversified. So they're caught flat-footed and they start closing. They start uh, losing jobs. And you had longtime families like the uh, the Van Winkle's and the Farnsley selling Stitzel Weller in 1972. You see, you know, long-time distilleries like Old Taylor close in the 70s. You see the Willets start have to change a little bit. And it's a really depressing time, the 60s and 70s. And by the time the 1980s roll around, you're seeing a category that's just dead. I mean, it's behind, like, cream liqueurs, gin, tequila. I mean, there's everything Rums. but. Everything's ahead of it. I mean, it's not a good time, and and so it, when bourbon's at its worst, the the worst absolute moment, you had people like Booker No, which uh, coincidentally I'm drinking Booker's right now, uh, Booker No, and Elmer Martini, and Parker Beam, and Jimmy Russell. These guys started, you know, kind of rechallenging, you know, the category. They come up with things like. Uh, the commercial commercially available single barrel, on small batch, and suddenly someone in Japan gets thirsty for it. And Japan becomes this crazy market where they'll just drink anything the American distiller's send their way. They're drinking Jack Daniels, Maker's Mark, Rebel Yale. You had companies creating entire new brands just to market to Japan. That's how Blends was created, was it was created to really meet the needs of the Japanese market.
0: So basically, well, Jap- our friends, the Japanese, who get yeah. passionate about certain things, and when the Japanese get crazy about something, they're they're all into it, man. So they get crazy yeah, about I mean, bourbon, and they help yeah. lift the category straight out of the muck on its they were, path. That was
1: the... That was the grow the one growing ca- the one growing region. You had other you had brands doing well like Maker's America was doing well, mm. Wild Turkey was doing well, but it was really Japan that was creating distiller enthusiasm. And so you had all of these initiatives um, in the early nineteen nineties ready to just take Japan by storm. That's why the small batch series was created by Jim Beam. It was to capture Japan, and then their market tanked. And everybody started getting really, really nervous. A company called United Distillers, now Diageo, they decide to actually sell their, sell off their American whiskey interest. They sell off all their stocks. They sell their brands like Weller um, to people like Sazerac and Heaven Hill who received uh, Old Fitzgerald. And also the actual whiskey; they sold the actual whiskey stocks okay. that would be used to create brands like Pappy Van Winkle, right, Jeffersons, and some of the more iconic brands of the '90s. And so, when that's did it become
0: popular t- in America? When did it when really? It, that's take that's
1: about the time. What time is, that time is it? What year really, is this? It's really about the time when the internet starts. Taking off. Okay. I mean, there there are bourbon so late 90s. social media groups before right. there's Facebook and okay. even AOL chat room.
0: Okay, and so.
1: you, you had people convening in Kentucky in the late '90s, getting together in the early 2000s, and then the millennials hit the stage. The millennials drink a lot of bourbon. The women drink a lot of bourbon, and so now we're looking at the very for the very first time in history, we're looking at every single generation drinking bourbon, and Good. it really. Really starts with our ability to communicate with one another with what the fuck we're drinking,
0: right? And to be a little bit of a bourbon snob, a little bit of a bourbon mm. nerd, and to not yeah. and to not cross over, Fred, into being a bourbon douchebag, which yeah. is tough because anytime something gets popular and a lot of people are into it, it's very easy to cross over. So we're we're in a golden age of bourbon. Can we say
1: that? Yeah, we're we're in a golden age of bourbon and bourbon consumers. What we what is what happens to the douchebags is they get they get put at check quicker than a you know than a hockey player. Because <laughs> let me tell you something. You get something wrong in bourbon and people will tell you. They will call you out and they're like, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Right. You know, and they they're not they're not trolls. I mean, they're like lawyers. They're like doctors. <laughs> yeah, they're they're you know? rabid.
0: They, they'll be like, "Okay, pal, you think you know your bourbon? You're, you're I'm gonna yeah. stuff you into a barrel, and you're not gonna forget it." What about those that are the ones that go, "Oh, don't don't put it over ice. That ruins it. Just straight sip whiskey right out of the glass." Or some people will recoil in horror if you dare to cut it with anything other than just ice. And I've heard other people say, "Hey, man." Drink your bourbon or whiskey however you like it. Where do you stand?
1: Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think I, I think that's a that's an ongoing debate for me. You know, there there's I have my limits. <laughs> like you know, if you paid five thousand dollars for a whiskey and then you put it over Coke, I mean, I'm going to cringe at that. But I mean, at the end agreed, of the day, it's
0: agreed. It's it, it makes no sense. But yeah, let's say, but at like, the end of the day, it's your money. Yeah. Well, see, I so. used to here's what I used to be. I used to be a guy that always put whatever it was over Diet Coke. But then I started to say, "Okay, let me just pour this over the rocks and let me just sip on it." And so now I'll go both ways. Like sometimes, you know, depending on what I've got, sometimes I will cut it with something, sometimes I a lot of times I won't. And so I'm kind of growing in that regard. I also Fred went and invested like a douchebag in the giant square ice, you know, silicone ice makers. So no, I that's, put cool, one, that that's cool, actually. Is that cool? That's not douchey? Okay. And, and, yeah, and, no, that's cool. Yeah. Okay. And so I put a big old rock in there, and I'm like, yeah, here's yeah. some bourbon. Not on the rocks. Bourbon on the rock. My one yeah. big cube. And then, because I was getting nerdy, I was like, I'd love to be able to make ice that is perfectly clear. And I went down this rabbit hole in the internet where I realized it's actually a science trick that requires sort of specialized equipment to do that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool that you went through all that. Yeah, um, like I you think, can yeah.
0: you can buy like these things that create perfectly clear ice cubes, but they're like these little yeah. encasements that let the air bubbles that are trapped in the water gently yeah. filter to the top and then you kind of peel it out and as soon as I saw what they were and how much they cost I'm like, "No, nah, I don't need to do that." So
1: So I'll I'll say this, like I I've been I was a lo- the long-time uh critic for uh, whiskey advocate I'm no longer with him because I'm starting my own magazine called bourbon plus nice but but when I when I reviewed things I had a policy to review it as they bottled it I mean if I if if, if I was of interest at the moment to add some water I would but I would not let that be my lead taste for the review so, and, and you know, and I'm doing other things too where I'm still reviewing stuff. But I think that policy will always hold true for me, including these competitions I'm a judge in. I'm like, I'm a judge on the San Francisco World Spirits Competition, and the glass is presented to me, and I have, as a judge, as a critic, you know, I have to taste the spirit for how it was bottled. You know, I can't, I can't adulterate it to my taste. Right. You know, so you have to. I think every Bottle of bourbon will be different. Yeah. You know, I actually – there are some bourbons I want to mix with ginger ale, and they're they're fantastic bourbons by themselves. But I, to me, they're, like, perfect yeah. in ginger ale. Yeah. Jack Daniels, there's not a better whiskey in the world than Coca-Cola, in my opinion. It just because there's a banana note in there that stands out. You can really taste the banana. It fits really nicely with the Coca-Cola. Oh, don't Damn.
0: don't ruin Jack Daniels for me saying there's banana in there now because that's my <laughs> banana is my arch nemesis when it comes to tastes and and fruits so I'm gonna pretend like you didn't say that the book is called All Bourbon right. Curious a simple tasting guide for the savvy drinker Fred Minnick. Is the author? He has a, written a follow-up book called "Bourbon: Rise and Fall and Rebirth of an American Whiskey." Uh, you see him all over the place, or at least you should, on television. And it's uh, it's just great what you've done. I love it. Now the next thing we're going to have to do is when you're in D.C., we got to get a meet-up, me, you, and some of my listeners, and we will sample some bourbons and some whiskey.
1: Well, there, there's a there's a great place there called Jack Rose. Um, it's uh, it's the world's best. Uh, whiskey bar if you've never been there it's in the it's in the dupont circle area
0: yes we went to we did a remote at a at a at a bourbon bar but it was not jack rose it was another one i can't remember its name owner was very nice they had a a very good selection not as big as the jack rose selection but still we got our we got our places to do it so i look forward to it freddie it's been great to hook up with you this is this was just an introductory course We'll loop back for some advanced studies. I'm sure in the future. Okay.
1: Hey, one thing I've got coming up that yep. you've got to know about, and I want you to come down to, it's called Bourbon and Beyond. Okay. It's September 21st and 22nd in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, it's, I, I curate all the bourbon there and the seminars. You'd be my guest, but Sting, Robert Plant, wow. uh, John Mayer, Lenny Kravitz. You know, those are the those are the musicians. And there's a lot of celebrity chefs there, but there's a huge, huge, huge bour- bourbon component. And If you want to come down, you know, bring a listener or two, or something. I'd love to have you.
0: It's a very nice invite, Fred. I'm gonna definitely. I'm gonna to aspire to be there. How about that?
1: And we gotta get. You gotta tell me what you're drinking, so we can get you on the on the path of. Elitism. Okay. You
0: know what? I'll, <laughs> you know what? I'll I will start cataloging what I actually bring home. I literally go every now and then to the uh, to the to the ABC store here in Virginia, where you know. Uh, The government officials have the thumb on the high-end spirits and the taxation of said items. And I just look for for bottles that are nice, and I look for ones that are nicely shaped. And I'm like, yeah, I kind of like this. I kind of like that. And I I just go with that. But, yeah, I'll start cataloging it. And I'll actually start taking some notes as to what I really do like and what I don't like. How about that?
1: All right, man. I'll I'll be your coach. (laughs) All
0: right. Very good. Fred, thanks for your time as always, bud.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure, sir.
0: Let's end on this today. Santa Barbara, California has enacted the most draconian anti-straw law in the country. According to Reason Magazine, it's easily the most severe ban and the most severe penalties put on the books for, yes, handing out evil plastic straws to customers at restaurants. There is a $1,000 fine and a potential for up to a year in jail for giving out a straw at a restaurant. That's right. It's now a law in Santa Barbara, California, where I went to went to college. Straw, could, if you're a waiter, you give out a straw, could be a year in jail. <laughs> I mean, it's just amazing. Seattle banned plastic straws earlier this month, banning a $250 fine for violators, but they did not add the potential for imprisonment (laughs) not only has Santa Barbara banned plastic straws they've also banned compostable straws oh and each individual straw that you hand out potentially counts as a separate infraction meaning if you give out four straws to a family of four you could be going to jail for four years this this is insanity we are living in insane times Because it's straws today, what will it be tomorrow? Oh, don't be ridiculous with that slippery slope theory. Oh, really? Here it is. We're sliding down the roof of common sense society like Clark Griswold putting up Christmas lights and Christmas vacation. Don't you see it? Straws today, something else tomorrow. Now, here's my question. Could somebody deftly counter this move with an ADA lawsuit, an Americans with Disabilities Act lawsuit, I'm thinking an armless man is the perfect guy to challenge the straw ban in Santa Barbara, California. An armless man who is very, very thirsty. How would he not have a very strong case that under the Americans with Disabilities Act that he is entitled to a straw? And if a guy who's armless is allowed a straw under the ADA, then what about somebody who just claims, well, I just had rotator cuff surgery on my right arm, and I really don't want to lift my drink. I just want to... I know this. I have uh, you know my, my older daughter, Catherine, who is uh, on the spectrum, special needs daughter. She always asks for a straw in restaurants why cuz she doesn't like drinking i mean she can drink out of a cup she doesn't like it though it's a tactile thing you know she didn't want the ice slapping around her lips and possibly spilling maybe maybe she spilled early on as a kid and realized now nah, this is no good always asked for a straw this is always a big deal i mean if this thing takes off i can just only imagine and now we're going to have to pack a straw family's going to have to pack our own special straw and clean the straw how long before using a straw is illegal? Even if you, it's your own straw, it's made out of, out of gold, and and it costs $100 or more, and you're going to take it home with you and not pollute the nearby rivers, lakes, streams, or whatever. How long before they go, no, that's illegal too? Well Why? Well, just because it is. Because we hate straws. Who knows? Find me that armless man and get Alan Dershowitz on the phone and we'll beat this thing. That'll be a wrap for today. You know the drill. Tell two friends. Hit up that Reddit thread about how great this thing is. Leave a positive review and rating. Forgive my golf trips, which are now coming here in the next uh, couple weeks. Hang in there. Football season is coming. And always remember, coaches who don't go for it on 4th and less than 10 inside the 50 are chicken shit, period, amen, end of story. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next time. Cruise and
1: lay back cuz it's summer time